0: And uh, can I please have your attention? Can you dig <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of a remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and the Dispatch Media. Um so I I, I, I don't mean to be uncharitable, um, or unkind in any way, because he's one of he's one of my f- favorite wonks. But the thing is, I've been watching the office a lot with my um, daughter recently, and I have to, I, I keep trying to put things in terms of the office and I can't decide whether our next guest is Toby Flenderson or, um, or Oscar in the sense that Oscar's the guy who constantly points out, you guys don't know how to run a business and you don't know how math works. And Toby Flenderson is the guy who comes in and always ruins everybody's good time. And that's sort of the, the life that Brian Riedel has chosen as a balanced budget, good government guy, is that whenever people get out over their skis about how to run the government or how to pay for things or how to not pay for things, he's the guy who says, you know, this is not how any of this works. But he's very useful in that regard. It's, a, it's in a, And he makes it as palatable. He makes eating spinach as fun as you can make it. So with that, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute uh welcome back to the uh back to the remnant uh thank you that's such a flattering introduction
1: i don't know how i can possibly <laughs> live up to such lofty standards
0: <laughs> well i mean you, you have to admit there is a certain i mean i'm, I'm on to something here right i mean i'm not saying you have the same personality of either of those guys but it just is like in public policy debates you're the guy who comes in and says we can't afford it yeah and I, you're yeah. right no, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a lot of gray hair.
1: Um, I drink heavily. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm the person who, when everyone's having their party promising everybody all these free benefits, I'm, I'm the, the one who comes in with cal- the, the nerdy calculator going, well, actually, we can't afford all of this. So um, it is the life I've chosen. And I'm really bad at it. Because when I arrived in Washington in 2001, The budget was in surplus, and Washington was spending two trillion a year, and now we're spending six trillion dollars, and we have a trillion dollar deficit. So, uh, frankly, I stink. Sometimes,
0: you know, correlation is causation. Um, So, clearly, we should we should burn you. Um, Well, what I what I always what we always tell the donors
1: is, it would have been worse otherwise. That's and that's non falsifiable. So,
0: that's that's the that's the obverse of, um, the old K street maximum among lobbyists, which is, you know, the, the, the rainmakers credo is when it rains dance, because if something good happens, you get to take credit for it. you know? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and you do the reverse. It's like, you know, something bad, something worse didn't happen. So you get the credit. All right. So anyway, we are recording this on Tuesday. It probably won't come out for about a day or so. And I have not been paying attention much to the breaking news of the last few hours. So I'm assuming fiscal rectitude did not overwhelm Washington all of a sudden. Um, So uh, why don't we just sort of start uh, given that you have all the scars of someone who's been having these fights for a very long time and I'll crack open a beer to uh, settle back. Um, Why don't we just sort of start with what do you make of the GOP's current claims of suddenly caring a great deal about fiscal responsibility and overspending? On the one hand, it's welcome. I would rather have a Republican party that cares more
1: about fighting spending and deficits than one that merrily goes on its way, hiking spending by 8% per year and creating new entitlements. So on the one hand, terrific. On the other hand, We've been down this road before. Uh, This is not my first rodeo. I've been doing this in Washington for 21 years. And I have seen Republicans go through these cycles where they spend like crazy for a decade. And then they get a fit of religion. And everyone panics in the Republican side and says, we need to balance the budget immediately. We need to shut down the government. We need to hit the debt limit. And everyone gets excited and then they overpromise, and they create a public backlash, and nothing actually happens. And so I'm a, I'm a little, I'll believe it when I see it, um, you know, there's a good way to fight overspending and deficits, and there's the wrong way to fight overspending and deficits. And I'm waiting to see how serious they are, particularly when... At least in the Tea Party Congress, the members actually got elected on these issues. They campaigned on them. They ran on it. There was a huge backlash about TARP, the stimulus, Obamacare. Most members of Congress right now did not run on this stuff. They did not get elected on it. A lot of them, frankly, ran on culture issues. And so this is kind of being thrust as part of the McCarthy speakership battle by a small number of members. And so I'm a little bit. Let let's see if this is serious, or let's see if this is a gimmick.
0: Yeah. All right. So, uh, and I don't want to repeat a conversation I had with Ab Stoddard in a podcast this week, but um, I agree with you in principle. I was like my 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 friend Ramesh Panuru. He um he always used to say, you know, flip flopping isn't necessarily bad so long as they flop in your direction, right? If like um if they end up agreeing with you. Um, better that they they be f- accused of flip flopping, but that's a small price to pay for them coming to your side of an argument, and um, um, and so the problem I have is I I, I have a hard time be- in believing the sincerity of of any of this. I agree with you. The, the phrase "get religion" is a good one because there is a kind of kind of like moral panic kind of thing, where I think a lot of them actually have convinced themselves that they're sincere. Um, It's sort of like, I mean, I don't know if you struggle with this, but every now and then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to really take, uh, commit myself to losing weight. And then you sort of overcommit to weird diets and all that kind of stuff. And I actually
1: made that exact example in my dispatch article this morning, which you can read on the dispatch. That must've been where where it came to mind. Yes, exactly. You you say, I'm going to, you panic and you say, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds in six months and then a day or two later you realize how insane that is and you order a pizza
0: right but then the other side of it is i so say here's my thesis is that yes there are some serious conser- fiscal conservatives out there they're in congress They're some of a lot of them are retiring of late but but they exist right um i think paul ryan was sincere about all that stuff and then um but then you have people who are really committed to the green eyed shade stuff when it's seen as rebellious and disruptive and anti establishment or anti democrat in the case of like during the Obama years. And then um, the moment it becomes um, uncool, they just don't care about it, right? So Trump was an anti establishment guy. He was a, this is sort of Mick Mulvaney's explanation of what happened to the House Freedom Caucus. And so all of a sudden, all these guys who had spent years, you know, play, you know, just harassing Boehner and Obama about too much spending, all of a sudden endorsed $8 trillion or nearly $8 trillion in more debt. Um, And the real test to me about where the, the zeitgeist is going is you look at the attacks by the Club for Growth of all institutions on Mitch Daniels of all people. I mean, it is like saying... We need to find, we need to, we need to restore true Catholicism in America. And that's why, um, you know, the, the Knights of Columbus are attacking the Pope. I mean, it's just, it's just weird. Yeah. I think if you look at the timing,
1: the big three spending backlashes we have had in my adult life were in 1995 with the Gingrich Congress, 2011 against Obama. And right now, what do those three instances have in common? All three were in the first term of a new Democratic president, um, it, it, this, it, it, which which feeds the perception that this is politics. This is we're, we're against. We're looking for any club net, that we can beat a new Democratic president with. And one of the easiest clubs to pick up and beat them with is is spending and deficits. But then what ends up happening is they overreach. They demand that a Democratic president sign into law spending cuts that they had never demanded a Republican president do. You didn't see any push on spending in the Bush administration, in the Trump administration, even in the earlier Bush administration, because they, they had different priorities. They wanted to cut taxes and hike defense. So all of a sudden, you you, you demand that the Democrats sign spending cuts that you guys wouldn't even do yourselves when you control the government. And it looks, like, again, like, okay – is this a legitimate interest in making the difficult decisions to get long-term spending and deficits down? Or are we just looking for the closest bat that we can pick up and beat a democratic president with? And it's, it's when Democrats say Republicans only care about spending and deficits when Democrats are president, I, I don't, I don't have a defense of Republicans against that. And that makes me kind of question a little bit, the sincerity here because you know, w- under president Trump, you had a full Republican trifecta in 2017 and 2018,
0: and they went on a historic spending spree. We'll get to your dispatch piece in a minute, but um, or maybe a little bit longer than a minute. Um, why don't you just sort of walk us through, like, I, I think you'd agree with me. Normally, when people talk about how this could be a real disaster, this could be a real crisis, um, I love, you know, for example, I loved listening to people talk about how the failure to name a speaker was threatening, you know, global stability <laughs> and the future of democracy. And I was like, really? An institution that is not in session, you know, six months of the year. Um, you know, it's just like, and, and, but for having Speaker McCarthy, you know, America might be run, run to ground. I don't think so. But uh, uh, the shenanigans with the, de- the debt ceiling crisis actually are it is not illegitimate to talk about flirting with real crisis and real disaster. So why don't you walk through what it would mean, what you think the likelihood is, how do you think this thing ends?
1: Right. Well, I mean, what the debt limit essentially says is is if you get to that point, the government cannot make any new borrowing. It cannot increase national debt. It can only roll over existing bonds. It can't, it can't create new debt. Ultimately, that means Congress has to immediately ba- or the federal government has to immediately balance the budget that day. They cannot, if you cannot borrow, you have to balance the budget, and you can't raise taxes unless you pass a tax increase. So what it means ultimately is because about 20% of the budget right now is funded by deficits, you would have to immediately eliminate that day 20% of new spending. And I, I can hear right now people going, you're damn right, we should eliminate 20% of spending. It's all fun and games until you realize that 80% of the budget is Social Security, Medicare, Defense, um, Medicaid, Veterans, and Interest. You know, and conservatives say, oh, well, don't touch Social Security and Medicare. And of course, you don't touch Defense and Veterans. And Medicaid is tricky. Well, there, that's 80% of the budget. You, you, you have to get rid of every other thing government does. It's totally unrealistic. And you also have economic chaos because even if we could prioritize which bills to pay and which not, which not to pay, are we going to have contractors who do business for the federal government who aren't getting reimbursed? They're going to go out of business. These are companies that, that, that depend and are making payroll and they're just not going to get paid you end up having the financial markets lose their minds because our low interest rates are based on being guaranteed as safe, full faith and credit of the government. So what ends up happening is interest rates rise, people panic, the economy hits chaos. Um, I don't think we're actually going to hit the debt limit because we never do. We come to a deal at the last minute. What the question will become as we get to the last minute is, Either are Republicans going to try to save face by getting some symbolic victory that they can take back home and say, we got something, or is McCarthy going to be forced to go to Democrats to get the deciding 5, 10, 15, 20 votes or whatever to pass the debt limit, which might trigger a challenge of McCarthy's speakership that only one member can do. But ultimately, you know, the question, are we going to go over the edge? Well, We've been very close before, and, and, and we haven't yet, and I don't think we will this time. The question is, how ugly is it going to get, and ultimately, how much is this going to end up sabotaging Republican, Republican pushes for real
0: spending cuts because they're going to scare the hell out of everybody instead? Just because you mentioned interest rates, I, I don't want to forget to ask you this later. We can get back to the current drama. Um, I think every time I've had you on here, Every time we I've talked or listened to anybody reasonable talk about the entitlement crisis and the fiscal crisis, and yada, 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 we've always said, look, right now, interest rates are at historic lows. If they just revert to the national average, right, um, what happens to the budget? And then, you know... Um, depending on the budget analysts you talk to, they either mime taking out a rope and hanging themselves or, or mime blowing their brains out <laughs> or just simply downing a whole bottle of pills. But the, the point is, is, like it's going to be bad. Well, interest rates are very high right now, right? Is that, is that problem materializing or did we, what, 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 what's going on there? Yes,
1: um, I think we've already seen the Congressional Budget Office last May, they put out their last baseline a a while back, and said, we're already going to have interest costs hit the highest share of GDP in American history in 10 years. We're going to have trillion-dollar interest costs in a decade. We're going to be spending more on interest than on defense for the first time in American history. We're going to exceed 3.3% of GDP for the first time in American history. That was in May. Think what's happened to interest rates since last May. They have rose a couple points since then. And so the next time CBO puts out their estimates, it's going to be ugly. Uh, one rule of thumb is that each point that interest rates rise, that the the interest rate the federal government has to pay on its debt costs $2.6 trillion over the decade in interest costs. Now, like that's more than the tax cuts. So if interest rates jump two points, that's going to add $5.2 trillion to the deficit over 10 years to the extent that that it, it factors into our borrowing so this is dangerous and over 30 years it gets worse it's 30 trillion over 30 years per point essentially what we did as a country is we built up this massive historic debt on the promise that interest rates would never rise again and i actually got in arguments with economists and i did podcasts and i got yelled at by people who told me i can guarantee you that interest rates will never rise again in the future ever <laughs> who says that <laughs> and i'm like what the hell oh, what the hell are you talking about and they had their little models of well if if you fact if you assume a certain future productivity rate through the global economy my model shows that interest rates will settle in at 1.8% forever and i pointed out that reality has a certain tendency of intruding on your cute little models
0: and lo and behold, we're getting there. It's like saying, I, "I guarantee you that Russia will not invade another country ever again." I mean, like, it's nuts. Okay, so um, that's not good. Um, again, I want I want to hold off just the pure, uh, you know, pie in the sky. What what should we do? Stuff for just a second more here. Um. The last time you were on, we talked about how um, there are some Democrats that have this theory that if you just rack up enough debt, that it'll force a more progressive tax system on us later. And so it's sort of like... uh, Yeah, just wait it out. Yeah, wait it out until the the, the forcing mechanism forces us to have what they imagine European levels of taxation are. Of course... Or Scandinavian levels of taxation. Of course, if you actually do the numbers, you know, we're we're kind of in the meaty part of the bell curve on OECD countries, right? At least last time I checked when it comes to total taxation. But regardless, um are you running into any Democrats that are more interested in figuring out how to to fix this problem on the spending end? Or is it just simply waiting for the taxes to kick in? Not really. Um, I mean, there is a group. Um, there's a 30-for-30 30 30 group of
1: House Democrats and House Republicans that have gotten together and have started having discussions about bipartisan solutions. It's, it's on the Republican side. The head is Jody Arrington, who just got elected chairman of the House Budget Committee. And so there, there's apparently quietly a small group of House Democrats, but broadly speaking, the Democratic caucus has shifted so far to the left on this stuff. It, it It's so progressive. I mean, these are the people who spent the last Congress adding trillions of dollars in new spending and not taking it seriously. And what's dangerous, as you alluded to for Republicans, is I always warn Republicans that as much as you don't want to take a suboptimal deal now, the longer we wait, the worse deal we're going to get. Because every year we wait, more baby boomers retire, more debt gets locked in, higher benefit levels get locked in. If you think it's hard to cut Social Security and Medicare now, wait until the baby boomers are 80 years old. You're not going to be able to do it at all then. So by the time you do it 10 or 15 years from now, you're not even going to get you know, dollar in spending cuts for every dollar in tax hikes. You're going to get 100% tax hikes. And I think smart Democrats know that. They know that the longer you go out, entitlement reform becomes impossible due to demographic locked-in benefits and debt buildup in the meantime. And ultimately, what happens is you just end up with where I think we end up, which is a payroll tax about eight points higher, and a ten or fifteen percent VAT value added tax. That's how Europe funds their systems. They don't just tax the rich; they sock the middle class with value added taxes and payroll taxes. And I've I've run the numbers on this, and they're ugly. And you're going to need people are going to be shocked by how big of a middle-class tax hike they're going to face. But that's the
0: democratic strategy is wait out. This has always been, again, we've talked about this a million times before, but like the cynicism of thinking that you can pay for all your heart's desires just by taxing millionaires and billionaires, um, no country in the world has managed to do that. And lots of countries that have had really aggressive wealth taxes had said, holy crap, this is not working out the way we thought. And they kind of pulled back on it. Um, they're simply... No way to pay for anything like, well, first of all, paying off our debt, but second of all, like anything like what people imagine a European style welfare state simply with the money from rich people. No, yeah. If if I ran the
1: numbers, I mean, if you take every Bernie Sanders tax hike and put them together, you won't even pay for current spending, much less a single thing he's proposed.
0: All right. So, how do we get out of this? Let's just say that Kevin McCarthy. Um, that, that, you know, somehow someone slips some sort of reasonable, I don't want to say, this is one of the problems I I really hate, right? Is like, we've now gotten to this place where if you want to be responsible or constructive or adult, that means you're squish or a moderate or a rhino or a lib. And it's like, no, it's like, you just, you actually just want to actually like Mitch Daniels is not a squish mitch daniels is like this really serious grown-up and um but because he actually wants to do his job he gets vilified and um so let's assume mitch daniels is president and he brings you in as as uh fiscal sanities are what do you do
1: the first thing is if mitch daniels has gotten elected that means that It's a good sign. That's a good sign. I mean (laughs) the the biggest barrier we have right now to a to a deal is frankly the public. Is that the public is convinced that the Democrat the left thinks all you gotta do is tax the rich, cut defense, and nationalize health care. And the right thinks all you got to do is cut waste welfare foreign aid in Ukraine. And so before you do anything, you basically have to disabuse people of the notion that anything else is going that, 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 that stuff's going to work. It's not, it's around, even if you do it all, it's a rounding error. Um, I do think, I mean, I guess politically what I would warn Republicans is the worst thing to do right now is to just put out a social security and Medicare bill like Paul Ryan did, because all you're going to do is get shot at and poison the well. What I tell Republicans and Democrats do is go out there and define the problem and talk about the fact that Social Security and Medicare face a shortfall of $116 trillion over the next 30 years. The rest of the budget is balanced over the next 30 years. Social Security and Medicare are $116 trillion in the hole. You ha- people have to understand that. And if you just put out a Social Security bill that's partisan, you'll get shot down. They'll, be, they'll run TV ads of you pushing grandma over an edge. You actually have to sit down with Democrats and you have to put everything on the table, including taxes. Um, I did a, re- a blueprint a couple of years ago that I'm going to update on how to stabilize a 30-year national debt. And I couldn't even do it on spending cuts alone. I, I couldn't. Like, I- you have to start getting into, like, with all due respect, Heritage Foundation land stuff. Where, like, well, you know, you, you get rid of food stamps here. No. Like, if you're trying to do something remotely plausible... You have to do Social Security and Medicare reform, responsible caps on other spending, you know, not getting rid of half the government, and you're probably going to have to raise taxes 1% or 2% of GDP because you can't get there from here. Additionally, we're not going to balance the budget. It's too hard the amount of cuts you have to take is impossible and frankly we don't need to balance the budget if you can you mean get, in a given year like yeah like, if you can get yeah, the yeah. deficit down to 2 or 3% of gdp that will stabilize the national debt at about 95% of gdp long term if the national debt is staying at 95% of gdp which is what it is now it's already risen from 40 to 95 uh since bush was president if you're stabilizing the debt around 95% of GDP, you don't have to be balancing the budget. You can be running deficits of 2 to 3% of GDP. But ultimately, you're going to have to do most of the savings from Social Security and Medicare, cap and limit the growth of other spending, and yet you're going to have to raise taxes 1% or 2% of GDP, not only because the numbers don't add up otherwise, but also because you're going to need the Democrats to vote for this too. If you try to do this alone, even with a Republican trifecta, you, Republicans are going to lose 60 seats in the next House election, and, and everything they do is going to get repealed on day one anyway. It's too big to do, your, to do yourself, which is why I get really bored when conservative economists and think tanks put out there, here's my utopian solution that you know, gets rid of all non-defense discretionary spending, eliminates welfare. Like You're just wasting our time. You can't
0: do this alone. I grant you, it's it's sort of a mild obsession of mine, but it seems to be, I mean, like, first of all, I think you'd agree that if we had sustained four percent growth, lots more things become possible. Mm-hmm. But that may not be possible given the age of our economy, our population, all sorts of things, right? But another thing that I just never gets the kind of attention that I think it deserves is stuff about how innovation could. Um, streamline expenses, right? It is like, if you look at what we spend, I always, I was just talking about this recently on here, but like, if you look at what we spend on Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's like diseases, through it's, it's like in the hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Now, people are going to die something no matter what, right? But there are more expensive ways to die, and there are less expensive ways. I mean, not to be gross about it, but that's, the, that's the truth of it. And um, I mean, that's why the creators of Logan's Run figured out, you know, how to about keep the balance, bud- budget balance. but budget um, balanced. But what if we, you know, are there things that, like, are there moonshot things that, on the sort of tech or innovation side, that you can think of like that? That obviously you got to do the grown-up stuff that you're talking about. I'm not trying to propose some utopian. Hey, instead of you know uh, cutting Social Security, let's cure. You know, Alzheimer's, that's not my point. My point is, are there things that actually just take remarkably little seed money for a long-term project that like would um reduce the cost of things? Um I I, I don't know what they would be. I just and you don't have to have a great answer to it either. I, I, mean, I, I don't just...
1: have a great answer. I can say healthcare was really complicated in this area because David Schweikert, who's been the Republican head of the joint economic committee, works on this stuff obsessively. And he's, you know, looking a lot of innovative ideas if you cure this disease, but it's hard because um, even if you cure the disease, again, you're going to die of something else. And so it depends on what, you know, if, if you cure one disease, but you end up getting a different kind of cancer instead, three years later, you've just to be bloodless about it. You've cost us three more years of social security benefits in the meantime, and now you have just as expensive of a way to die. Which is not saying we shouldn't do this stuff. Obviously, we wanna we wanna save people's lives. I do think curing diseases can help. I think efficiencies and technologies can help too, just to streamline the system, even even setting aside the public health angle. I mean, our healthcare system has an enormous amount of waste. And, you know, we're people anybody who's worked in our healthcare system can tell you the bureaucracy, the paperwork, the the doctors getting paid for, you know, the more the more they do rather than what they cure. There are ways to streamline that, you know, get costs down 10, 20% from the baseline. I think we absolutely have to invest in that. Um, I don't have a, the great answer for how it will fix things. I think it's part of the solution. It's really hard to do. Um, and ultimately, it, it, you still have to do the hard stuff. Um, but if we can get more growth, if we can streamline the system, if we can cure diseases you know i mean it's it's kind of like the climate where if you can do innovation that is so much more sustainable and pro growth than root than 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 anything you have to do on root canal you just have to be realistic what's what's possible
0: i'm i'm totally with you about what a responsible plan for for trying to do this would look like and how you need buy in from both parties i also think that i'm not going too far out on a limb when i say that's not likely anytime soon Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, I don't mean to be like a killjoy, but I I think that's right. So, with that in mind, like, how, what do you think? I mean, let's assume you're right, and I think you are right, that we get too, we flirt too much. We play the game of chicken gets a little too close to a collision with the debt ceiling, but we don't actually default and we get past that. What does the next two to five years, you know, sort of look like? Does the problem only get worse? Um, is there anything that you can pin your hopes on? I think over the next two to five years,
1: um, interest rates continue to rise, which means the baseline deficits get worse. Uh, Congress is going to deal with the tax cut extenders, which is going to, I mean, I like tax cuts. Um, I think the corporate reforms are really important, but the extension is going to add $3 trillion over 10 years. Okay.
0: E- explain that a little bit to the people. Sure, sure, that's I'm sorry. Too much the, the
1: Trump tax cuts are set to, uh, on the individual side, most of the Trump tax cuts are set to expire on New Year's Day 2026, which means all you know rates go back up, the child credit falls. It's not just a matter of, oh, well, it's tax cuts for the rich. There's a lot of middle class stuff in there with a the standard deduction, the child credit, EITC, that would reset. Realistically, even the Democrats aren't going to let the middle class stuff expire either kind of like the Bush tax cuts in 2001, everyone will agree on extending them for the bottom 95%, and the fight will be over the top 5%, but that's $3 trillion. So I think what happens over the next couple of years is more ba- the, the rest of the baby boomers retire, interest rates rise, the tax cuts happen, and then you get into really what I think is ultimately going to be the only forcing mechanism here, which is financial markets. I mean, I, I've been trying to... I've been doing national tours, op-eds, TV, op- you know, to get people motivated on this. It doesn't work. People don't care uh, unless it affects them. But if the financial markets at a certain point panic and say, these trends are impossible, we're not going to keep lending you $3 trillion a year, which is where we're headed in a decade from now, during peace and prosperity. Do you think we're going to lend you that at 2% interest rates? You guys are drunk. You're going to have to get your money somewhere else. That's what forces that, that's the forcing mechanism for Congress. It's not even the Social Security Trust Fund. That's a dozen years off. And in the meantime, Social Security is still running big deficits that are going to get worse. Really, I think how this ends is, is we just keep kicking the can down the road until the financial markets cut us off. In a perverse way, the sooner that happens, the better. It's, you know, rather than letting it spiral even worse and making the the, the, the
0: medicine even worse. I saw somewhere on Twitter by someone who seemed to be a normal person. On Twitter? Yeah. I I I get said seemed to be a normal person, saying that if if we had merely cut entitlements and maybe plus defense, I can't remember, by four percent in the year two thousand, we would have a balanced budget now or something to that effect. Is is that right? Or is they just pulling that out of the air? I mean, entitlement
1: spending since the year 2000 has gone from, I mean, just, just social security and healthcare entitlements have gone from 7% of GDP to 11% of GDP, which is huge. 4%, I mean, 4% of GDP hike just from social security and healthcare. I can't imagine a 4% cut that year if you then revert to the old growth rates, negating a 7 seven to 11% of GDP hike. Um, I'd have to see the tweet. I don't want to just. Dis- you know but but that, it it takes it takes a lot more than that i think
0: yeah because it, it's it's it sounded like this it was this thing that everybody knew and i was like i feel like i would have heard that before um so i figured i'd check with you um so let's let's do some contemporary controversies thing here um i assume you saw the exchange between congressman donald's and and joy Reed. Oh my gosh! I, t- last I, tweet, week. I
1: tweeted on it right before I put my a gun to my own head. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we can
0: play some of the audio for it. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not it true. Will. That, that is, is actually, actually not what true. The no, it's say. actually not, not true. Joy. It's actually, it's actually I work not true. It's actually not. But it's actually not true. That's actually not true. That's actually not true. Social Security will go insolvent. That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not. Should we not? That is not true. I wrote about it last week. The like, Donald said matter of factly that the, that social security will be insolvent in 2035. Um, that is in fact what the trustees of the social security administration or whatever that thing is called commission. And CBO says even earlier. Yeah. So like, and like the people who signed the trustees report for social security include the treasury secretary of the Biden administration and the HHS secretary of the Biden administration. So these are not exactly sort of, you know, it's not Steve, it's not Steve Forbes you know saying this and um and she just kept saying that's not true that's not true what is the most charitable defense of that claim i mean is is it just is it just the trillion dollar coin thing lurking or monetary modern monetary theory lurking right. in the background I mean,
1: social security has so much misinformation out there with the trust fund you know people i i i was tweeting about this last week there's so much misinformation on social security that the trust, it can't go into deficits. The trust fund pays all benefits. Uh, and therefore we don't need to do anything. It's it's not an entitlement. You're just getting back what you paid in. If you just raise the wage cap, this is my, my, the one that drives me crazy the most. If you just get rid of the cap on what wages uh, go, that'll pay for all of social security. It's not even close. I think the charitable argument for what Reed said is when people hear insolvent, they think eliminated. And some people say, well, social sec- you, so if, if it goes insolvent, from an accounting standpoint, that means it can't pay full benefits. And in Social Security's case, it means benefits will be cut 20% across the board in 2035, and that cut will grow over time to 25 30 35%. But when some people hear insolvent, they think it means the program will cease to exist. Now, Joy Reed should know better. She's wrong, because even the trustees use the word insolvent. And even the GAO report, summarizing the trustees' report in the executive summary says, quotes the trustees saying it will be insolvent. And so the most charitable case I can make is they hear insolvent and think eliminated,
0: but that's not what it means. It's sort of like it's sort of it's a little analogous to bankruptcy. Like when a company goes bankrupt. It doesn't necessarily mean it goes completely out of business and creditors don't get anything. It just means that, like, there's a kind of triage for creditors and they might only get 50 cents on the dollar, but like money still goes out, right? Um, And you can get out of bankruptcy and lots of companies have done that. Lots of, you know, former, or at least one former president has too. But the fact that Joy Reid kept repeating herself made it more persuasive
1: when she just kept saying, That's not true. You know, the, the 20th time she said it, she convinced me.
0: I think in Latin that's called argumentum. Add repito <laughs> um, all right so and then there's this all right so and again i talked about this with ab i wrote about this it it really bothers me um it kind of gets to your point earlier about over promising stuff there was the after the house one of the first things they did was they voted to rescind uh the 87 billion dollars for new irs agents which is complicated um and it was amazing how many people, how many Republicans said they did it. We defunded the IRS agents or we we got that stuff. And they did nothing of the sort, right? I mean, it was like that legislation, that bill now goes to the Senate, we're all die. Even if it had survived in the Senate, Biden will veto it. There's, They didn't do anything, but they let people believe that they were doing things. Um, And I think that's that sort of attitude of lying to people about what you're actually doing on these performative things is one of the reasons why we're in the mess we're in. but. On the actual merits, where do you come down on this thing for the IRS? Yeah, and I I saw what you're referring to. There was a tweet by a congressman who who said,
1: we did it. We defunded the IRS. And I saw people posting in the replies, um, schoolhouse rock. I'm just a bill. Uh, (laughs) You know, I'm probably going to get shot for this, but I don't have a problem giving the IRS more money. Uh, uh, Again, take away my... Ex Heritage Foundation card, and that's because um, a the IRS not all of it's going to agents. I mean the the IRS is still every year you, people mail their IRS 1040 to the to the building, and they manually copy it by hand into their computer systems. They don't scan it. They have people manually typing up your your 1040 into a computer like, system, like data entry. Yes, data entry people man. They, Manually type it up for millions of returns. This is absurd. They need resources to modernize so that they're not manually typing up your 1040. You can't get anyone on the phone when you call the IRS. They, they need to modernize, they need customer service. But also, I mean, and just in terms of, of audits, the audit rate has actually really collapsed for rich people. And the amount, the tax gap, which is the amount of of tax evasion that or that basically gets through the system has really risen, and I just find it hard as a conservative to defend that. I think before we before we raise taxes on people, I I, I think I think there's a legitimate case to say, well, at least go after millionaire tax cheats before we raise middle class taxes. I think this is kind of a conservative credibility issue that they're not going to listen to you on other revenue issues as long as you're defending that. And, you know, I I have friends who will tell me a lot about IRS abuse and, and, and and over audits and aggressiveness. And we've lived through that, you know, lowest learner in 2011 with the IRS bullying conservative nonprofits. I would rather Republicans go after that. Why don't you streamline IRS operations, go after abuse, go after over aggressive auditors, But simply saying, we don't think the IRS should audit rich people evading their taxes. I don't think it's good policy. And I think this is the stuff that makes Republicans get tuned out by swing voters when they then talk about cutting Medicare. Uh, And they say, well, you won't even go
0: after tax cheats. So again, I'm going to get hate mail for that. But yeah. Well, look, I'll join you. And and just to be clear, I was audited twice a few years ago. And the first time... I deserved it because I screwed up something. I, um, um, I didn't report some miscellaneous income from some speeches and that's a huge red flag. And once they decide to look at you, they, they look at all of you and it was a very unpleasant experience. The next year I was audited again, because I think once you get on this list, you're on the list. And I thought that was completely unjustified and unfair. And, um, uh, and I was fine. I, they found, I did nothing wrong, but, um, the, the experience really hammered home for me just like how backward the institution itself is. It was so hard to get people on the phone. It was so hard. The, the, again, I don't want to invite another audit, but like, I was not particularly impressed with, some of the people I was dealing with (laughs) Um, and when their supervisors came in, you could tell there was a real step up in, in competence, but I actually had to go physically into the IRS offices more than once. And you look around and you're just like, this is, this is a pretty dilapidated kind of place. And And this was like the main IRS building in DC or whatever. And it gets to a point that Kevin Williamson makes a lot, which is that, if you're going to be a modern serious country we can all inv- we can all sort of like denounce bureaucracy but we actually need competent bureaucrats and like I would have much rather to deal with somebody who like actually like I could reason with about this stuff who wasn't just Sort of going wrote or didn't understand what I was talking about about explaining some things and all that kind of stuff, and whose normal resort like I think this happens with a lot of bureaucrats is when in doubt, ask for more pieces of paper because you can justify everything right and like and and so we're it's it's like the people say defund the police or defund the FBI you need and like I'm all in favor of, like, I, I agree with a lot of criticism of the FBI, but, like, unless you're willing to say we're going to send all cases of counterespionage and bank robbery to the states, um, you're going to still need some institution that performs the function that the FBI forms. Similarly, in, a, in the richest country in the world, with the most modern high-tech economy, arguably, of any large country, um, you're going to need a service that collects revenue. So it might as well be good at it, right? And it might as well be run by professionals.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I don't really know what the end game is um, for for the people who just say, well, we're going to have a tax code. We're going to have Congress pass tax laws, but we'll also make it really easy for people to evade their taxes. I mean, what's the end game there? Like, I I mean, logically, if you're going to have a tax code, you need to have the integrity of the system because otherwise, frankly, you're making chumps out of the people who are paying their taxes and you're kind of degrading the system. And in the 1990s, I think conservatives were a little better on this because we had things like in Congress, a taxpayer's bill of rights that was focused on let's stop IRS abuse. Let's, let's make the modern competent and let's make sure that people aren't bullied, mistreated, that their rights are protected. I think if we focus on that, you you can not only win conservatives over like that, but you start to win over moderates, you know, centrists, and even any progressive who's gotten an audit from the IRS might be like, yeah, you know, damn it. They, they shouldn't bully me like this and they, they should, you know, respect, you know, my, my rights and they should be competent. But also, I mean, again, when a lot of this money is going for modernization and customer service, like, yes, we should give the IRS more money so that when you call, you can actually get somebody on the phone, and no, they shouldn't be manually typing your 1040 into the system because what can happen is if they mistype your 1040, they manually enter a wrong number, that can be a reason you get audited because then the, the system will flag it as the numbers don't make sense here. So it's in, it's in everybody's best interest to have an IRS that, that actually you know, can, can look at your tax
0: return competently. So you you mentioned how or we were talking before earlier about how like if present trends continue, the the dream on for some Democrats or some progressives is that we'll just get high income taxes and a VAT, right? And um, the thing is is like conceptually, I got no problem with a consumption tax, whether it's a VAT or something. I should say no problem. I have a problem with all cat. There are problems with every form of taxation, but I think consumption taxes make more sense than income taxes. Um, My problem is with the both and part, right? If it's either or, I would actually take a VAT over an income tax. Um, Even if it might affect me negatively, I think it'd be better for the economy. It'd be better um, for for raising revenue and whatnot. and it seems to me most economists let say look the most efficient tax would be some version of a consumption tax right um just cuz it's um, it's really efficient and it doesn't actually require the kind of compliance that the irs the, the income tax um requires where do you, where do you come down on it i mean like uh, and and you know what what would be your preferred tax system if you got to write it
1: Um, I am I'm wary of creating a VAT because again, you're, you're going to end up with both a VAT and an income tax and, and, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to promise you just a 1% VAT. It won't go up just like the income tax was originally 1% just for rich people. And then a few years later, the top rate was 63% and everyone was paying at least 25%. Um, you know, once they get, once they get it, it's going to go through the roof and you're going to end up with both. I mean, conceptually, yes, a VAT. You know, a consumption tax, tax is what you take out of the economy rather than what you put into the economy, as they say. That's what a consumption tax does. Um, but at the same time, this kind of moves into the fair tax debate, which I think is, is a bad proposal um, The, nas- you know, the, the replace- to, to do it just a national 30 percent sales tax. Rather than the income tax, I think creates all sorts of complications that I I'm not sure you want to get into. But conceptually, yes, if you're gonna raise taxes, a VAT a VAT is a competent way of doing it for the economy. The danger is it's a cash cow. It's it's a easy it's an easy rate to raise. And so I would rather not even create the VAT in the first place just because it's going to start at 1% and then it's going to be 15 and 20% within two decades. And then we're going to wake up one morning and we're going to be, we're
0: going to be taxed like Swedes and wonder what the hell happened. But I mean, again, if you could have it, if the choice wasn't both and, but either, or would you prefer uh, something, something like a VAT over the income tax? A VAT not, which is different from a
1: national sales tax. Um, If you did it as a VAT, that's probably a more fair and enforceable system the again the one of the transition issues though if you switch to consumption taxes now you have people who, you have distributional effects like senior citizens who paid taxes on all the income when they earned it no longer earning income and now they're paying taxes on 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 their consumption but just i mean as an economist yeah i mean consumption taxes like a vat are are absolutely more pro growth than than income taxes because you you're shielding. It's, VATs are very enforceable. It is very hard to defraud a VAT. And you're shielding savings and investments that are
0: too low and that we need the economy to grow. Why don't we, I mean, for the sake of listeners, and you'll probably do a better job than I am, actually explain what, uh, how a, what a VAT is and how it's different than a national sales tax. A value-added tax isn't just a national, a, a sales tax is just,
1: you go to the store and they, lo- they add 30% to your purchase. Sales taxes are very, you want an underground economy, have a 30% sales tax. People will evade that. Businesses will evade that. Actually, businesses will merge. Rather than buy from other businesses, they'll just all consolidate into one business so that they can transfer inputs back and forth without paying the tax. The underground economy gets huge even with a national sales tax, you still have to file with the IRS because you're probably going to get a prebate at the end of the year and you have to file for the prebate of how many dependents you have and and, and how rich you are. A VAT works differently. A VAT is when from the beginning of production, as the production goes up the chain to different companies, they layer on the tax along the way to each other so that by the time it gets to you, it's already embedded in the price, and it's already been paid by the companies. That's a lot harder to evade. It's also less noticeable um, because again, the tax has been paid throughout the process and passed on to you at the end, rather than just we're going to add on thirty percent at the last second, which everyone is just going to evade, and it's going to and you're going to have you. And also, I also mean, you just do a thirty percent. You want to put a thirty percent sales tax on buying a house, on. On your cancer treatments, on your college tuition, no, you want to. They're going to want to exempt all of that, which then creates loopholes and definition issues, and then you have to raise the tax to forty percent on everything else. But the VAT is, is is every country that has done a sales tax, a national sales tax, has transitioned it to a VAT because the sales tax is so easy to evade.
0: Yeah. So on this on this point, about, I mean, it's a very good one, right? Um, with old people who spent their lives paying taxes and now you switch the tax code. on It seems to me, I mean, it's been a while since I paid a lot wrote or thought a lot about this stuff because there was a time I'm sure you remember it well, where it really did seem like we might come up with a new tax code in this country. Uh, and one of the points that I always thought was valid was that whatever system you come up with, it has to be the kind of thing where you give Americans a choice for a little while of choosing which system they want to be under. Because, because of these distributional inequities and, and whatnot, right? And, and that's how you could ultimately end up replacing the existing system with something else, is you let people figure out which one is better for them for a while. It seems to me like, that. Well, first of all, it, do you think that's right? And second of all, does it really friggin' matter? Because it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get rid of of the, of the basic outlines of the system that we have now.
1: I, I think if you do that, you have to actually make both, both tax systems more painful in the meantime because everyone's going to choose whichever one they comes out better for them. And so you actually have to kind of raise that rate in, in assumption that – because you know, you know people are going to choose that one. You're, and so you kind of have to make it a little more painful. I think we're never – the distributional issues are just too tough. If you switch to a new tax code, you are going to create massive winners and losers. And that's, you know, one of the things, again, like with the national sales tax or a VAT, is you create massive winners and losers. And in fact, a lot of the losers become lower income individuals that, I mean, we can't even get rid of a tax deduction without people freaking out. A tax deduction that's, you know, 10% of the people get. I just think it's probably just going to be too hard having gone through tax reform debates to ever really transition to a new tax code. I think the best we can do is gradual tweaks to the income tax. Like for instance, the 2017 tax cuts really hiked up the standard deduction and now only about 10% of people itemize and a decade from now, only about five or 6% of people are going to itemize and you can gradually over time, essentially get rid of itemization. And get rid of a lot of tax deductions, some of which are are good, but some of which are wasteful. Just kind of doing it gradually over time with people grandfathering into a new system. I think that's probably more realistic than tearing it out root and branch. But I mean, I go back to the 90s when the 104th Congress was talking about this. Um, the first House campaign I worked on in 1998 was for Mark Green of Wisconsin. And our number one promise was to sunset the the IRS tax code uh so this this is a perennial that goes back to the 90s but as soon as you dive into it the winners
0: and losers make it too hard um so i mean we're, we're running up on time here but one of my biggest peeves and it's a fairly bipartisan one when it comes to all this tech stuff is congress loves to say they're doing something to incentivize stuff that they like right um we want corporations to be more competitive on this. We want corporations to be more, more humane on that. And then they get all pissy when it turns out the corporations don't pay their quote unquote fair share. Now, it, this really is sort of, it goes, there are layers and layers to this of, of my annoyance because it also, it anthropomorphizes corporations um, and makes it sound like, there's John Q corporation is this fat creature that isn't paying its fair share when that's just corporations are legal persons, not real persons. But um, those quote unquote, horrible loopholes were progressive darlings or, or conservative darlings as it happens on both sides. Um, So what are, what are some of the quote unquote, you know, Outrageous corporate loopholes that you think are most defensible or most indefensible?
1: Well, the, the reason corporations usually don't pay income taxes is because they don't have any reported income for that year. And the reason that often they don't have reported net income is either they are carrying forward a loss from the previous year, or most of their profits are foreign and therefore not in the US or just as common, you've deducted your research and the, your research and experimentation, or you've deducted your investments. And those are the things Congress passes law saying, we need more business investment. We want you to deduct all these smart things that you do, R&D, business investment, new plants and equipment. And then they, they lower their, their, their net income to zero. And then they say, oh my God, 43 companies didn't pay an income tax last year. Well, Yeah. And then the crazy thing is the response of President Biden is we need to raise the corporate rate. Well, if the deductions are reducing their income to zero, it doesn't matter. What <laughs> raising the rate doesn't matter? You know, 50% and 50% and nothing is still nothing. You can you can assess a hundred percent tax on zero income. The point is the deductions reduce their income to zero. You need to actually get rid of the deductions. And I think. The deductions that I think are the, actually the most defensible are R&;D and, bi- and, and, and depreciation and, and, and business investment. Company we want businesses to invest in their workers, to invest in plants and equipment to, to invest in R&;D. This is a good thing. Um, some of the, the less defensible is sometimes we take it too far with um, you know deducting interest as an expense which creates biases in terms of, of, of debt finance versus borrowing. And, 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 and you know, there's, there's certain, you know, little, little corporate loopholes here and there that generally aren't that big anymore. We actually, one, one of the big secrets of the 2017 tax cuts is the corporate portion almost entirely paid for itself because we lowered the corporate rate from 35 to 21 but we got rid of a mass of corporate deductions and we created a much better international corporate system that actually got rid of most of the bad things. And it actually paid for almost the entire corporate rate cuts. The whole cost of the 2017 tax cuts is overwhelmingly on the individual side, not the corporate side. And the main corporate deductions that are left are R and D and, and business investment,
0: which are good. All right. So, what would be the equivalent of loopholes that you think are justifiable or unjustifiable in terms of the individual tax code, the, you know, the personal income tax code? Um, I think you still have, I think the mortgage
1: deduction may be on its way out at a certain point. If economists get their way, um, we, you know, we've lowered it now to, it. uh, you can only get it up to $750,000 and house prices are rising, that more families are hitting that and fewer people are, are um, actually benefiting from the mortgage interest deduction. Same with a state and local tax deduction. We've limited how much that is. That's essentially a tax cut for rich people that helps uh, state and local governments raise money and dump it on on on, sta- on the cost of the federal government. Those are, those are ones that might go away over time. The charitable deduction will stay, of course. That'll just become a deduction everybody can take. But at some point, too, we probably got to address the tax exclusion for employer-provided impri- employer health care. That you don't pay taxes on the, the employer health care benefits your boss gives you, and that kind of results in some overconsumption of health of, of care, it gets rid of the the pressure to streamline healthcare costs and it's really one of the inefficiency drivers and what we could do over time is gradually phase out the healthcare exclusion for pro- employer provided healthcare over a, a longer period and the and you actually might not have the hit on families be very much because the you might actually have more efficiencies and more conscious shopping around for for better health plans but, you know, the tax, you're not going to get huge savings in the tax code by getting rid of, you know, tax cuts for tax credits for killing puppies. Um, you know, the argument that there's these easy deductions that that are trillions of dollars that only bad people get, they're really not there. You're kind of looking at things like mortgage interest deductions, state and local and the health exclusion that are a little trickier on the individual side.
0: Yeah. And we should always remind people that the reason why we have this employer provided health care system that we've got, which I don't want to say it's all evil. I mean, there there was a reason why it exists, a reason why it sticks around. But it's because when the, we had wage freezes in World War II, companies needed to figure out some way to have extra benefits that were attractive to more talented labor, and they started paying for things like healthcare. And um, you know, it's sort of like uh, um, I don't think I don't think Milton Friedman was part of that, right? Milton Friedman. He was part of the tax. Milton Friedman created tax. Right. He was part of the withholding thing, which was, um, again, I think the tax withholding thing is what prompted Milton Friedman to say. And apparently he hated having this brought up, um, that there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Right. Um, And. uh, um Anyway, it's a it's a good example. It's a, I mean, Tom Sowell talks about how rent control was supposed to be a temporary wartime measure, maybe during World War I, I can't remember, but um it gets to your point about the vat thing is like these these small incrementalist or temporary things take on lives of their own once the, you know, camel's nose gets under the tent and metaphors get mixed. Um but um all right, so you've done your job, it's depressing and everyone's going to have to eat their spinach and um, um things aren't going to get better um until they get worse and um um and uh was it was it was it clinton who said we're all slaves to the bond market now or something like that
1: yes that was that was during the 90s he said that um i think there was someone in the clinton white house or carville also said um when I die, I want to come back as the bond market because I can haunt everybody that way. I'll be the <laughs> scariest thing alive.
0: So all praise and honor to the bond market, our, our true overlords. And uh, and Brian Riedel, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Okay, so Brian Riedel has left the studio. And um, um, you know, I like him so much personally that it, I, I feel comfortable saying it's always good to talk to him i'm not sure it's always good to talk to him about the stuff that he's he's dedicated his life to um and uh but i'm glad that we have him around so that's all i've got i'm not going to do a whole big house cleaning thing right now i will be doing the uh solo remnant later in the week but i got to get to the airport and um i want to thank you for listening i want to thank uh uh brian riedel for uh moving his schedule around to do this and um i'll see you guys next time no you won't this is a podcast